Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thanks to Chris and it's right on 4 o'clock. Jan Bartlett with you until 5.30. Today... Vanuatu, one month after Cyclone Pam. I'll be speaking with Nick McClellan, who actually went to Vanuatu last year. Matters Bayside with environmentalist Neil Blake, and that's our bay round here. Part two of the history of Iran, which was Persia, with historian and author Brian McKinlay. But first, let's find out if Mr Kevin Healy's had one of his weeks. A week, Jane Lister, when as we celebrated and follow Easter with our great religious event, the footy season, the big blockbuster was a one-sided battle. It's amazing how the telly channel and the Lord Rupert of Wapping Media in particular tell us the most boring game between two average Melbourne-based teams is a blockbuster. Well, not amazing. Blockbuster business. Blockbuster turnover. The big blockbuster was a one-sided battle between the corporate cowboys and the injury-riddled tax tyros. Not only riddled with injuries, but short of replacements, having delisted thousands of key position players. A game in which point naught, 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 naught something percent is a massive winning score. Being the percentage technology giants, for instance, pay the tax tyros. But as Giggle, so-called because, well, it's obvious they giggle all the way too, via the tax tyro bypass, as Giggle said, we are not opposed to paying tax, we are opposed to being uncompetitive. Uh, And how would you become uncompetitive? By paying tax. With that, the tech giants decided to giggle or Google this strange word, T-A-X. Nothing doesn't exist. Says there's no such thing. Hang on, try T-A-C-K-S. Let's see. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Why would we want to give all sorts of sharp little pointed thingies to the government? We mentioned last week the Falfax Media gloatingly announced its uh, arch-rival, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Media, News News Unlimited, paid 4.8% tax on turnover. It it hasn't mentioned how much the Falfax Empire pays, but they wouldn't, wouldn't they? Anyway, Lord Rupert's lot finally raised the issue when its true blue Aussie supremo, brackets temporary Julian Clock, the tax department, lobbed before this Senate inquiry Wednesday and complained that online rival media companies had an advantage because they avoided paying the GST. Poor Lord Rupert. Imagine how shaken he'd be that someone would take advantage of a tax system. His whopping sin finally mentioned the tax evasion, sorry, legal tax arrangements allegations through its giant economic guru Terry Pukan, who devoted a whole page to attacking the messenger, the Falfax Media and a commercial telechannel for suggesting Lord Rupert would ever dream of avoiding tax. The news pages did give a fair bit of coverage to other companies other than themselves avoiding tax. Sorry, abiding by the letter of our tax laws. 
The big four world accounting firms who advise the law-abiding corporate giants about the letter of our tax laws then face the inquiry. In fact, last year the government commissioned price as high as possible Waterhouse to advise it about the very tax arrangements price as high as was advising its clients to exploit sorry, utilise or, or whatever and in the inquiry we heard its spokesperson have an oops, that's not what I meant moment when she mused on when we make the laws uh, I mean when well, a moment of honesty, albeit, but, well, these inquiries love a bit of honesty. And anyway, what's it matter? Hands up anyone who thinks the facade, or sorry, the inquiry, will lead to all this lot actually paying tax. After all, that would obviously be not abiding by the letter of our tax laws, given that not paying tax is law-abiding. The law-abiding good corporate citizens made a compelling case for not being harassed by this parliamentary waste of time. Collectively, Lord Rupert spoke for them, we constitute a very small percentage of the population, a small minority. Clearly in a democratic free society, the majority has a great responsibility to the minority. The majority, that the mass of lazy, avaricious workers, of the unemployed, the pensioners, the disabled, the homeless, might I say through no fault of the minority, the sick, the uneducated, cannot expect us to bear the full burden. These people have a responsibility to compensate for both revenue shortfalls and necessary cuts in government spending. We cannot live beyond our means and these people must accept that social responsibility while recognising that the era, the age of entitlement is over. Uh, but Lord Rupert, your whopping sin in particular posits itself as the defender of the little person, the average battler. You, you hate injustice. Certainly. And nothing I have said changes that. I am the strongest supporter of little people. After all, I, I'm not that tall myself. The whopping sin proved this, defending retirees whom Lord Rupert cares so much about who could be forced onto the pension if they lose tax credits on dividends. And as we also mentioned last week, just incidentally, that could also affect poor Lord Rupert himself and the law-abiding shareholders of the great corporates and the big four accounting firms and their mates. On that tax imputation, tax credit bit, this economic giant mine from the Lowy than Low Institute says the answer isn't to remove it and tax the poor shareholders, the poor very, very rich shareholders, but to extend it to the overseas shareholders of the great corporates who don't pay any tax in the first place. My word, we've got to admire the capacity for lateral thinking by these people, haven't we? The homeless, the unemployed, the destitute must be breathing a sigh of relief. Great news! We won't have to pay tax on our windfall share dividends. Again, as we mentioned last week, as Lord Rupert flogs 20 cent on a train killer coins for $3, a mere 1,500% profit, hopefully tax-free, he continues his dedication to educating dear little children. Every day, the half-page dedicated to flogging the coins, featuring a dear little child telling us how much she or he realises how our true blue Aussie values were forged on the cliffs of Turkey, how we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for our failed invasion. They don't explain that last bit, but it's in the whopping sin, so it must be true.
Back to that great religion. No, not trained killing footy. Impossible to watch the sundry discuss footy as if it's all that matters in the world programs. What with Wayne, a sexist convicted molester and domestic violence perpetrator on one channel, and Sam, another sexist, make fun of the disadvantaged on the other, and on that channel, Craig, a caring employer who was sprung, paying staff at his radio station exactly zero, naught. Well, not paying staff. They always tell us underpaying is inadvertent, and we have pointed out they never seem to overpay inadvertently, but naught, not paying at all, seems to be an acute case of inadvertent. The government also brought out a new white paper on climate and energy policy and on climate change, which may or may not be climate change, it says... Hang on, no, 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 it's not there. It doesn't mention it there. It must be here. No, no, no. Look, if I find it, no, no, when I find it, I'll, I'll let you know next week, listener. Now, let's be serious. We have to congratulate the government for releasing a report on climate change, which succeeds in not even mentioning climate change. It would have been a waste of time, Fossil Minister Ian McFarting explained. The report is looking 40 years ahead and under our policies that the planet won't be here. Yeah, when they put it that way, it, it makes sense. But the report did explain the cause of our skyrocketing utility bills. Nothing to do with privatised companies maximising profit, ripping off, needing to burn more and more fossil fuel. No, it's down solely to all these long-haired commie greenies shopping those great benefits to the economy, exploration, mining, coal seam, gas exploitation, fracking. Finally, thank goodness we've got David Shepherd of The Rich to advise us on what's good for us. Former Business Profits Council Supremo, so important he's on all these corporate boards, trying to steer this country in the right, the very right direction, despite the resistance of those barriers to progress, pensioners, workers, the old, students, the sick. Remember David was appointed by Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses to advise on where government could save and he came up with lots of those necessary savings in last year's ever so popular budget. Well, he came out this morning telling us the revenue problem we're told we have, raising revenue by, say, TAX, is no solution. The solution to our problems lies solely in expenditure. We have an expenditure problem. Direct quote. The government hasn't convinced voters on the case for the tough decisions on spending. True Blue Aussie is still locked into unsustainable spending in sensitive areas like the age pension, family tax benefits, aged care, education and health. See, they're the problem. The unentitled thinking they have an entitlement and destroying this country. Uh, so the corporations are new paying taxes is no solution, David? David? Quick, quick, the smelling salts, quick. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And as I say each week, you can hear more of Mr Kevin Healy at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning with City Limits here on 3CR. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. I'm joined by journalist and author Nick McLaren. Nick, it's less than a month ago 
that the Western Pacific was devastated by Cyclone Pam. The media has moved on. Yeah, well, these disasters are sort of presented as flash in a pan. So when Cyclone Pam hit Vanuatu, there was a flurry of media activity, enormous public outpouring, a lot of uh, support of people donating through non-government organisations, through the Red Cross and so on. But we're already onto Cyclone Solo in the Pacific. We've had Pam, then Ruben, Solo. Um, the names are already pre-programmed. Thule's coming up, Ula after that, and eventually we get to the beginning of the alphabet and start again. So there's always cyclones in the region, uh, particularly in the western Pacific, from the Philippines down to Vanuatu. But this cyclone, Pam, caused enormous devastation out of a population of 265,000 people. The latest figures suggest that about 188,000 people have been affected by the cyclone. When we say affected, it means their houses blown away, their gardens have been devastated, their water supply has been damaged. So a large proportion of the population have been really hammered, and yet it's disappeared from the Australian media. Was it a worse cyclone, or was it just where it hit? It was particularly uh, intense cyclone. Um, they rank cyclones according to categories. This was a Category 5, which is currently the, the highest category. Indeed, there's a debate now about whether they should create a Category 6, because what we're seeing um, in recent times has been cyclones that have been larger than have been uh, seen before. In 2013, uh, Typhoon Haiyan, it's the same sort of thing, a cyclone, Typhoon Haiyan hit the Philippines, over 7,000 people killed. And at that time, that was a Category 5 uh, cyclone, and people thought that uh, there needed to be a higher ranking. So there's a lot of technical debate about how you measure these things. But certainly many people in Vanuatu that I've spoken to says it's the worst storm they've had in living memory. You see that with the damage. Most people in Vanuatu still live in rural settings, in small villages. They grow their own food, although there are urban centres like Port Vila and uh, Lenakal in, in the island of Tanna. Those are the exception. And so people have literally had their houses blown down. All the leafy trees have had their vegetation stripped. Uh, all the food gardens, which are vital for people who live off farming and fishing, have been uh, devastated. And it's going to take some months before they can regrow food and so these sorts of impacts are, are really significant. I think, though, that it's really important to highlight the resilience of the community and, indeed, the preparedness of the community because this is not the first cyclone to hit Vanuatu, nor the last. There's been widespread programs, both by local organisations and by international NGOs, to develop what's called disaster risk reduction, disaster risk preparedness, to look at ways in which you can uh, uh, prepare for these sort of natural disasters and to minimise the effects is this one of the reasons for the difference in the death toll in Haiyan and Pam? Very much so. In spite of the destruction, only 11 people have been confirmed dead, although there are some concerns of a few extra casualties. But at this stage, uh, the formal uh, uh, death toll is 11, which is astounding, given that you think that uh, nearly 200,000 people have been affected by this, this cyclone. And a lot of that is to do with the work that Nivanuatu have done in uh, months and years beforehand to get ready for events like this. And you saw that, didn't you? Last year I was very fortunate. I travelled with a number of NGO workers to an island called Futuna, which is the most southeasterly island in Vanuatu. It's part of uh, Tafea province, which is the southernmost province in Vanuatu. It's about 600 people living on essentially a volcanic plug in uh, the ocean, a very small airstrip on the one piece of flat land uh, off to the side, 
but there's no roads. Um, there's only one telephone tower, so only half the island has uh, telecommunications. To get to the villages, there's about six villages clustered around this volcanic island. We had to walk, so over four days we walked from village to village meeting with people. And I was with uh, members of the Vanuatu Humanitarian Team, which is a coalition of uh, local and international NGOs working together, accompanied by Shirley Laban, who's from the Vanuatu Climate Adaptation Network. And they're doing work on exactly these questions, how to prepare for disasters. There were wonderful initiatives. So firstly, they'd set up a what they called a CDC, a Community Disaster Committee. We met with the chair and members of the committee, and they said, well, look, we've got the old people, the young, the mamas, uh, the chiefs, what they call the four pillars of the society, all working together and giving young people a voice particularly. They'd set up information networks, So when people who had telephone communications on one side of the island heard the cyclone was coming, they sent runners to the next villages. And literally over these rocky mountain tracks, they sent people to inform other villages to get ready. They were trialling a lot of cyclone foods, knowing that gardens would be devastated by an event like Cyclone Pam, as has happened. They had uh, rigged up some solar dryers, for example, to dry pawpaws and uh, mangoes and other fruits and see whether those could be preserved, breadfruit and all sorts of things. They were trying to to dry uh, to see whether it would be possible to use them as a post-cyclone food to tide people over. And that's traditionally been the case. Um, They showed me a technique where... Historically, people, when they heard a cyclone was was brewing and looking at the weather and the clouds and so on, gathered bananas and mashed them up and wrapped them in leaves and buried them. And that fermented banana mash essentially provided a a foodstuff for the first uh, period after a cyclone when uh, vegetable gardens had been wiped out. So there's all sorts of techniques, and people were were looking both at traditional knowledge drawn from uh, their elders in the community and new technologies so they'd rigged up this solar dryer using a busted computer and they'd taken the fan out of a computer to circulate the air in the dryer so people were looking at old techniques with modern technologies and it was really innovative and I think it's something worth highlighting that people who live through disasters in Australia as much as anywhere else have a resilience and don't sort of sit there waiting for handouts. What were their plans for water? One of the areas was looking at uh, water catchment and uh, setting up uh, systems. So, for example, people post-cyclones often catch water in tarpaulins and they provide a dual purpose of short-term shelter and also water catchment. The Vanuatu government, through what's called the NDMO, the National Disaster Management Organisation, had been pre-positioning things around the provinces. So they had, for example, fuel dumps, petrol, vitally important to run generators after a, after a disaster, tarpaulins, medical supplies and so on, so that some of this material was pre-positioned and anyone who read the Australian media would have known that for the first few days there was a level of, frankly, chaos. As, you know, Everyone tried to take stock of what was happening to make assessments of what was happening not only in the capital but in the rural islands. But people had thought about this and therefore pre-positioned material. So there's a lot of work being done and Vanuatu in some ways is in the forefront of this where in recent years they've been merging the work around disaster preparedness and response with climate change adaptation because one of the key themes that uh, the governments in the Pacific constantly stress is that these so-called natural disasters have a human element in them. The science we know is, is telling us that climate change and the drivers of climate change are affecting weather and climatic patterns and uh, a lot of science has been done about cyclones so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, 
Scientists through the Fiji Meteorology Bureau, which is a regional hub for meteorologists, supported by the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, have been doing a lot of work on cyclones in the South Pacific. And the science is pretty clear that um, although the frequency of cyclone events won't increase over the coming years till the end of the century, the intensity of cyclones will. And so what we're going to see is more intense cyclones like these Category 5 or even potentially stronger cyclones. And that's a problem because the devastation of infrastructure that happens, if that happens, you know, regularly, it's a real setback to economic, social, cultural growth in a, in a country. And it's worth remembering that Vanuatu is a very poor country. It's a least developed country by UN definition. And as an LDC, a least developed country, it's already very reliant on agriculture and tourism for its economy. And both of those have been devastated by uh, this uh, Category 5 cyclone, which passed over many of the islands, particularly the southern islands. What building materials do they use? Well, obviously in urban centres, same uh, concrete, uh, corrugated iron, uh, roofing and so on. But when you're in the rural villages, people often use uh, thatch. So the fronds of coconut palms are thatched, local building materials and so on. That has some advantages. Um, In a massive cyclone, those roofs just blow down, but there's no flying corrugated iron. One of the reasons there's less casualties in some cases is people don't get damaged by flying uh, metal and glass and and so on. That's often a, a cause of damage in major cyclone events. But it involves people rebuilding houses. And one of the problems is that all the coconut palms have been stripped of their leaves. Those leaves are vital for building and thatching. So to rebuild houses, people you know, don't have the materials that they traditionally have used. So those sorts of impacts are something that, that will go on for a while. There's been a, a rapid response from uh, um, governments, China, Fiji, Australia, New Zealand, France, have all sent supplies or medical teams There's been three Australian helicopters from the Australian Defence Force there that are just finishing up their work. You know, they've got to move on to new cyclones, to new events. So um, after a month, uh, the the ADF support has been wound down. I noticed uh, just yesterday a a friend told me that um, up until now, um, non-government aid workers have been able to hop onto the Australian helicopters, Australian Defence Force helicopters, to travel from island to island. But the ADF and the New Zealand Defence Force have now stopped taking passengers. They're still shipping some goods as they wind down their operations. But the NGOs have now got to pay for their own airfares. So those sorts of costs uh, are ongoing and indeed will last for months, indeed years. What about communications? Communications was really badly hit uh, in the early days, particularly the first day or two. But Vanuatu is a country with relatively poor communications in many cases. When I visited Futuna, for example, uh, there's one a mobile phone tower near the airstrip, and that only covers an area around Mission Bay, the little town near, a uh, little village really near uh, the, the airstrip, and doesn't reach across the island. That tower was blown down, um, and I tried to ring people, you know, who I'd met last year to see what was happening, and for obvious reasons couldn't get through. Um, and so until they can get a team down there to rebuild the telephone tower, communications are, are very weak and people are reliant on flights to get in. But airstrips have been damaged or, or bogged you know and so there's a lot of a lot of work that has to be done and some neighboring countries fiji tonga have provided patrol boats naval patrol boats uh, to help ship goods by ocean from you know and carry five tons at a time of of uh, food and supplies and so on uh, particularly to these small scattered populations in the outer islands you know it's striking and i think this is one of the important things about the politics of these disasters 
you know, Australia in the the media was presented as a great saviour to Vanuatu, and indeed people have welcomed support from Australia and other neighbouring countries. It's still vital and ongoing. But um, many of the institutions that Australia has to support our neighbours have been weakened in recent years by cuts to the aid budget or cuts to other institutions. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One is Radio Australia. When I was in Futuna um, at a village uh, called Matangi, which is on the far side of the island, no telephone communication, a woman, young woman, uh, who just joined the Community Disaster Committee said to me that we rely on Radio Australia for news. Sometimes we can't hear Radio Vanuatu, we don't have phone communication, so when there's a cyclone bearing down on us, we rely on Radio Australia. Now, as we've talked about on the program before, last year there were massive cuts to Radio Australia's budget. ABC International lost 80 staff, including the Pacific correspondent for TV, including the Pacific correspondent for radio, including the New Zealand Bureau, which was supposed to provide services for the Pacific. Um, So the cuts to the ABC, although you might think it's a domestic issue, have an enormous impact on a neighbouring country like Vanuatu, one of Australia's closest neighbours, where Radio Australia has got less resources for timely broadcast. And uh, the team there do a great job with limited resources, but still, it's an example. The same with uh, the CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology. As I mentioned, there's been a lot of research about climate change and cyclones in the Pacific. In the the Rudd and Gillard years, there was a thing called the Pacific Climate Change Science Program, which was a collaboration between groups like the CSIRO, our Australian Bureau of Meteorology, and bureaus of meteorology around the region. And a lot of the work was being done around sea level rise, around cyclone management and so on. $110 million cut from CSIRO last year in the, the, the hockey budget. The Bureau of Meteorology had its budget slashed. And so the outreach to neighbouring countries, which is vital, as I say, for least developed countries like Vanuatu, has been constrained into the future. And the Abbott government cut $11 billion out of the aid budget over forward estimates, so over the next three or four years. It's about $3 billion a year has been taken out of the aid budget. So even though we see in the media Australia leaping in to provide support after cyclone, the long-term capacity, not only for humanitarian response after the cyclone, but for rebuilding, I think has been compromised because we know that not only Vanuatu but other countries around the region are affected. FSM, since Cyclone Pam, has had a cyclone. Uh, You won't know it, but Cyclone Pam also hit Tuvalu. Very little media coverage, but 45% of the population according to Prime Minister Anneli Sopoanga, 45% of Tuvalu's um, population was affected by Cyclone Pam. Vanuatu hit the headlines here, but Tuvalu had the same bloody cyclone. And, you know, families displaced, hundreds of people in the outer islands affected. On Nanomea and other islands, water supply really badly damaged. And there's a need for resources to go there as well. But Tuvalu is competing, frankly, with Vanuatu for public attention for ordinary people who dig into their wallets, as they do very generously, to give to Oxfam or Red Cross or CARE or many of the other agencies that are working in these countries. And this is on top of sea level rise, which is impacting as well. Yeah, and it's really important to make this connection. We talk about natural disasters, but there are human elements related to this that ultimately affect people's livelihoods and indeed lives. More and more people are clustered on the coast. They're moving into urban centres. So the population concentrations are greater. So when there's damage to water supply or roofing or infrastructure, power, that it impacts more people and there's greater risk. Secondly, just the physical processes. Cyclones build up over the ocean and draw their energy from the warmth of the ocean. And as we know, the oceans are warming 
Pacific Ocean as a great carbon sink as uh, increasingly takes on that. And a lot of the science is now looking at how the warming of the oceans will impact the intensity of cyclones and the nature of the torrential downpour that comes not only with the wind but with the rain that comes with cyclones. And that's one of the things that scientists are looking at. Vanuatu has relatively high levels of sea level rise for the region. They are quite variable around the region depending on a whole range of scientific and uh, geological factors. The Pacific Climate Change Science Program found that Vanuatu's rate of sea level rise since 1993 was about 6 millimetres a year. 6 millimetres doesn't sound much, but when you add it up year by year over the last couple of decades, um, it's significant. That's nearly double the global average of sea level rise. So Vanuatu uh, is affected. And one of the things these low-lying atoll countries see is that when there's a storm surge, the higher sea level means that water floods further inland. When there's a cyclone pushing water from the ocean over the coastal barriers and so agricultural land gets flooded and that impacts on people's capacity to rebuild to regrow food after a cyclone damages water supply where fresh water supplies might be impacted by seawater for example so these sorts of problems are compounded by uh, the sorts of changes we're seeing in the long-term climate and that's why countries like Vanuatu are at the forefront of arguing for much more urgent action on climate change for much more stringent reductions of greenhouse gas emissions And why, once again, not only with the cuts to Radio Australia and the CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology cuts to the aid program, Australian intransigence on climate change and adopting much stronger targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is really, frankly, damaging our neighbours in the medium to long term. Have you noticed on your trips there that people are changing the way they're growing their food and what they're growing? Yeah, you can see that particularly not so much in Vanuatu, which has very rich um, agriculture, but uh, in some of the smaller atoll nations like uh, Marshall Islands, Kiribati, uh, Tuvalu and, and other places, their soil is not so good. Their you know, coral limestone uh, is not a great environment for growing food. In places like Tuvalu and Kiribati, people grow what's called swamp taro, which is people create a swampy pit um, using hummus and composting and things and grow taro in that uh, using limited amounts of water. So it's a very sustainable way of growing it. But what we've seen is with sea level rise and uh, with storm surges, salt water floods over these agricultural areas and salt water gets into the swampy pits and that obviously damages the, the growth of taro. So there's a lot of work being done on, one, protecting the, these agricultural pits, but also on developing salt-resistant taro. There's work being done uh, through the Secretary of the Pacific Community to look at this problem. And, of course, if you can't grow your own food cheaply or efficiently, people turn to other foodstuffs. That's a problem because already uh, Pacific countries have... Uh, some of these atoll countries are relatively poor nutrition. Fish is the main protein and breadfruit uh, and some green leafy vegetables, but if it's harder to grow vegetables, people take cheap non-nutritional foods, magi noodles. So kids at breakfast, will, you know, all you've got to do is boil water and pour it over the magi noodles. It fills up your stomach so the kids stop crying, but it's got limited nutritional content over time. And so there's a shift towards greater processed foods, tinned and processed foods, which are high in salt and sugar and fat, contribute to the epidemic of obesity and what's called NCDs, non-communicable diseases. In fact, two years ago, health ministers around the Pacific declared an NCD emergency, and there's an incredible amount of resources being put into dealing with everything from obesity to uh, diabetes, which is a growing problem in many Pacific countries, as well as 
you know, cardiovascular and, uh, and, and things. You know, countries in Melanesia, Vanuatu, Solomons, PNG, countries closer to Australia have a lot of infectious diseases like malaria, once again affected by pools of water after a cyclone. But uh, in other parts, uh, they're very civilised countries. They die of obesity, of HIV, AIDS, of uh, uh, so-called progressive and civilised diseases, uh, just as we do in Australia. And then, of course, Nick, there's the trauma of people being forced off their ancestral lands because of climate change. One of the big challenges is about maintaining a sense of place. You have to sometimes relocate whole villages, and we've seen examples of that in Fiji. Seven or eight villages have already been relocated from coasts or alongside rivers. It's worth remembering also that riverine environments are often dangerous with river flooding. Now, that's happened in the past. Uh, Korovo in Fiji, Koro means village, Vo means new. So Korovo is the new village. It's already moved historically uh, because of changes in the environment. The mobility of Pacific Islanders is not something new. And In fact, the whole region was colonised by people moving, and sometimes it's suggested because of environmental drivers. But this forced relocation of people creates a whole range of social challenges. And the people from the Carteret Islands? Yes, very much so. A number of countries, there are examples of people in outlying islands moving. But it's often more internal displacement. Cyclone Pam, for example, has created a huge social problem for the future because there are many people living in squatter settlements around the capital Port Vila. I've often been to Freshwater or uh, Seaside, Freshwater 2, and these are the names given to these sort of peri-urban squatter settlements around there where people have come to squat often on government land or on uh, private land that's not being used and they built tin shacks and uh, you know fibro homes and whatever they can to, to create there. And there's been a long debate about what government services should be provided to these areas. Should you be encouraging people to go back to their villages at home or do you provide water and electricity and so on to the, the squatter settlements? Now, many of those settlements have been very badly damaged. Some estimates 80% of housing devastated during Cyclone Pam. The obvious question is, do you rebuild the squatter settlements or do you try and do some forward planning to move people to new areas? Now, all that takes resources. And this is the great challenge for poor countries. You know, when we have floods, as we've had, or cyclones, you know, Cyclone Larry destroying our banana crop in, in Queensland, the floods in Brisbane in 2009, 2011... You know, we set up insurance levies to, to raise the money to help rebuild and uh, people who've, who've moved into areas that have been affected by the floods. A developing country like Vanuatu just doesn't have the capital resources to deal with all the complex array of things that need to be done for rebuilding and reconstruction. And that's where they were reliant on overseas donors after the initial humanitarian surge, which has been very generous from Australia, from New Zealand, from China, from Fiji and other countries. But eventually the foreign medical teams have to go home. The three Black Hawk helicopters that Australia has provided have to come back to serve other purposes. Yet Vanuatu still needs to rebuild, knowing that there may be other cyclones uh, in the pipeline and problems of drought and flood uh, related to climate change in coming decades. Are we likely to see more cuts to the foreign aid budget? Well, there was some interesting um, kite flying uh, just uh, before Christmas. There was an article in the paper. You remember uh, before Christmas, Julie Bishop went off to Lima to the UN climate change negotiations in Peru, accompanied by um, Andrew Robb, uh, you know, a more conservative climate sceptic minister who went to hold her hand and make sure she didn't do anything naughty while she was there. Pre-Christmas, there were articles in the Australian newspaper, the rag of choice for government leaks, suggesting that the aid budget would be cut again. That's worth remembering. The aid budget is about 1.3% of our national budget, and yet 20% of the cuts 
in the first hockey budget came from aid. There's no constituency, no voters who are going to complain in Australia when foreign aid gets cut, except a small number of NGOs who'll raise the flag. And Julie Bishop has been fiercely trying to defend her patch because people are doing it. A few weeks ago, there was a a scene in Parliament where Joe Hockey was praising the work of the Expenditure Review Committee. And Julie Bishop, who's the minister responsible for the aid budget, was rolling her eyes, literally, and holding her face in her hands in Parliament. It was noted at the time that the Razor Gang that's looking for areas to slash uh, is there. Now, there's been an assault on working-class life in Australia, around health, around education, around public schools, devastation of the TAFE sector and so on. But we've also done incredible damage to some of the poorest people in our region, a least developed country like Vanuatu faces significant challenges. You know, this government, when they first came in, in January 2014, just three months after the election, they cut $650 million out of the aid budget halfway through the financial year. So the May 2013 budget that had been uh, issued by the Labor government, they just chopped three-quarters of a billion dollars out of it, and money was cut to Vanuatu. I think it's important to try and read through the spin. You know, yes, Australians have been very generous when it comes to the immediate humanitarian response, but we've got to talk about longer-term development. We've got to talk about longer-term engagement. And already a lot of the aid budget is used for what I call boomerang aid, you know, money that comes back to benefit Australia rather than benefit the so-called recipients. But even so... These are countries that need resources to uh, rebuild from these climate and disaster-related impacts. And governments like Australia are the first to scream when the Chinese move in. Well, and that's the case, and it's because of these issues, because of the Australian government policies on climate change, on aid, on trade and other issues, where people are looking broader than Australia and New Zealand, who historically have been part of the Pacific Islands Forum. So we see uh, Fiji still announcing that they're not going to come back to the Forum this year. Papua New Guinea will be hosting the Forum in September. It's the 40th anniversary of independence from Australia. But at the moment, Prime Minister Bani Marama of Fiji has announced that he won't be coming to the Forum. And Fiji's been talking about restructuring the Forum so that Australia and New Zealand, which are currently full members, will take on a new status and that the forum would be a body run by and for Pacific Islanders. There's the feeling that uh, the divergent policies, particularly on climate change, but on some other issues as well, decolonisation and so on, means that there's no longer a compatibility um, that's existed since Australia first joined the forum in the early 1970s. And that's author, journalist, Nick McClellan, formerly from 3CR, way back in the dim, dark ages. I believe he was one of the people involved with the Asia-Pacific currents right back at the beginning. But now he's a commentator on 3CR and we're very, very happy to have him. And in a couple of weeks' time he's off to New Caledonia and we'll be talking about that visit on his return. Do you support more renewable energy for Australia? Want to see more clean tech jobs here in Victoria? Do you want politicians to do what it takes to tackle global warming? You do? Then how about joining the Yes to Renewables team at an informal campaign info night? Come along to find out more about the barriers stalling the rollout of renewables. Meet the team behind Victoria's most energised renewable energy campaign and find out how you can support our work. When? Next Tuesday, April 21st from 6.30 till 8pm. And where could we find you? At Friends of the Earth at 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. Friends of the Earth is a supporter of 3CR Community Radio. With our fat bellies, grow and- 
today. It's welcome back to Neil Blake, who is the director of the Port Phillip Eco Centre. He's the Port Phillip Baykeeper and a winner of awards at last year's Premier's Sustainability Awards, the Premier's Recognition Award for the Eco Centre, the Cleaner Yarra and Bay Award also for the Eco Centre and a Lifetime Award for Neil from the Victorian Coastal Council's Outstanding Achievement Award for his Baykeeper role. Welcome back, Neil, and begin with the Coastal Education Project. What's involved? We're looking at establishing a whole range of community activities, citizen science activities around the Bay that um, will give people a bit of an insight into some of the threats that occur that come out of the catchments, out of the streams particularly plastics and, and other litter, but there are other pollutants as well and uh, nutrient loads, all that sort of stuff, uh, just to get people um, aware of the connection between their street, if they live in, happen to live in a suburb uh, somewhere around Port Phillip Bay, that ultimately what go, ends up on their street could end up impacting on the bay in a positive but often a negative uh, way. Well, that's a lot of suburbs, isn't it, when you take the whole of Port Phillip Bay? Yeah, well, it is. I mean, you've got the Maribyrnong River, for example, which has quite a large catchment. Then there's the Werribee River and the various creeks, uh, Corroyd and Laverton, etc. The Alster Creek, otherwise known as the Alwood Canal. So there's quite a few, and uh, it's important for people to understand, though, that the waterways are linked to the bay. And is it more households now than industry, or is it a mixture of both? Well, it's a mixture of both, but probably uh, more so households. I think uh, industry is reasonably well regulated by the EPA, although there are some uh, noodles escaping and from uh, injection moulding plants that are getting into waterways and quite dangerous to wildlife. program happening with Tungaroa Blue at the moment where they'll be talking to industry about those issues and uh, pointing out a few simple ways that they can prevent them from escaping. So we're hoping that uh, in the next 18 months uh, the bay will become a noodle-free zone. Well, the fish will be happy. And what does it actually do to the fish? As they're floating in the water column, uh, the plastics can actually adsorb other toxins from the water, you know, so chemical pollutants. And therefore, that's an added load of uh, toxicity getting into the into the fish when they swallow it. And what do residents need to be educated against in these suburbs? What are they doing that's harming the river? Possibly what they're not doing too. <laughs> I mean, one of the obvious ones is if you see a plastic bag on the street, pick it up and put it in the bin. You know, like it's not going to kill you, is it? Within reason, you don't want to make take unnecessary risks if something looks grotty or you know whatever. But, you know, like often there'll be a, a plastic bottle on the street or, uh, you know, and those sort of things that people can take just some action to, to get them off the streets. One of the most common pollutants, though, we see in waterways is polystyrene. Whether they've come from, uh, you know, white goods packaging, somebody buys a ghetto blaster and it comes wrapped in this big pack of polystyrene and that just gets put out on the street. Some way or other it escapes and things like fruit that comes in polystyrene crates too that uh, often you see them uh, just blowing around on the street. They get run over by a car and then they're into you know 50 pieces and they gradually break up into smaller and smaller bits and the, the beach is just covered them in them. Although you don't notice it because they're in such smaller amounts but when they are in smaller amounts they're, they're of a size that can be ingested by wildlife. You make a big point of of getting the schools in the area involved in your projects, don't you? 
the young people are the ones that are in, inheriting the future, the future that we're uh, leaving them, our legacy. They really need to be empowered and uh, a way to actually shape that in a positive way. It's important that they understand the issues for a start, but also that they connect to their local environment and they know what to call that bird over there, rather than just uh, knowing it by the fact that it might be the same as what a footy team's named after. If people don't understand or have a name for, for the life that's in their area, then they're not going to talk about it amongst their friends and it's therefore not going to be an issue in an election, for example. If people don't have it, they're not literate about their local environment, then uh, they're oblivious to it. What sort of projects do you get school children involved with? Uh, well, we do um, litter audits and noodle counts but also um, shoreline shell surveys so that uh, they can actually put a name to uh, and an under- have an understanding about how the mollusks that, uh, that live on their local beach, how they uh, exist, what eats them, what they eat. Uh, we, we need to um, get an awareness that, that mollusks are really quite a fascinating uh, group of animals that uh, play an underlying role in, in underpinning the, the food chain, really, that uh, the higher species up the, up the chain such as the dolphins and the penguins that are, get all the good press you know they're the ones that are, everyone they're really fantastic and f- fascinated to see but uh, if it wasn't for the mollusks and the role they play in in uh, setting up the food chain to provide for those higher order species there would be no penguins and dolphins and what are mollusks well a range of um particularly shellfish you know so uh, oysters and um, mussels but within that, uh, there's bivalves and gastropods, which if you want to get uh, into that, breaking it down. But it's, it's really quite a complex uh, order of species, though. But uh, generally, they're animals that um, don't have backbones and they, they have a range of roles. Some of them are vegetarians. Others are predators and eat other mollusks. <laughs> Some of them are detritivores, the ones that eat the craps, basically. Others that are omnivores, so they, f- they filter feed um, food out of the water. They've got a range of roles, I guess, as I said, in cycling nutrients. And I guess the ones that I'm particularly interested in are those that live on or in the seabed. So because they're in that location, uh, they start off eating the microalgae and uh, other small microorganisms, the nutrients that enters into the bay that sort of begins its journey into, into the, the life forms, starting with the algae, is then uh, transported by the mollusks into a form that can be uh, taken up by other species that uh, eat bigger things. How deep is the, the bay in parts? Uh, well, generally, I think the deepest part in the, in the centre of the bay is around about 24 metres or thereabouts. Much of it is, is quite shallow, though. Uh, an interesting, fascinating uh, water body, though, and if you look at a map of Australia, uh, you'll see nothing else like that. Well, it's a large area, so it's over 2,000 square kilometres of water, but it's virtually enclosed, so the, the, you know, the area opening at the Port Phillip Heads is only a couple of kilometres across. In that sense, it's kind of separated from the uh, separate ecosystem from uh, the Bass Strait. Have you noticed any changes yet after the dredging? There's been um, ongoing erosion over quite a number of uh, foreshores. Uh, uh, that's something that I think you know, Port Sea and, and certainly at Observatory Point uh, down on Point Nepean appears to be directly related to dredging, but uh, 
there's obviously other factors and variables coming into it too. So uh, with um, climate change and extreme weather events, etc., storm surges, they, they all contribute to uh, the um, situation. And that's, I guess, one of the uh, fond uh, hopes that uh, <laughs> the people, the proponents of the dredging had was that uh, the, the impacts of the, of the dredging would be kind of masked by other things that are going on around it, you know, so it's hard to actually quantify just how much uh, any one of those things contribute to the situation. you notice any changes in the, the animals and the birds? Uh, well, there's some interesting um, research being done uh, by a PhD student on penguins in particular. She's doing analysis of uh, penguin body parts and organs, tissues, and also feathers, feather samples, um, and doing analysis for heavy metals and contaminants and has found that uh, there has been a couple of contaminants uh, that have actually became, been more elevated post-dredging. So she taken uh, samples from Phillip Island Colony, St Kilda, and another one, I think it's Notch Island, I'm not sure exactly where that is, but it's outside of Port Phillip Bay. And the St Kilda penguins have uh, had elevated levels of certain toxins that, that hasn't been matched in the other colonies. So pretty clear that there's a, there has been uh, an impact in that sense. But um, the question then remains as to whether or not that's actually had an impact on the breeding success, for example, of the, of the St Kilda penguins, or, you know, whether there doesn't appear to have been significant mortalities in the colony, but uh, there could be longer-term uh, effects, though, to play out. And how do the toxins become ingested into the penguins? Where were they coming from, the toxins? The toxins originally were uh, in the sediments of the Yarra and also just around the top of the bay. In the, where, so those sediments were actually dredged to deepen the, the shipping uh, access to the port. They were dumped in an abundant area in the centre of the bay or thereabouts, a six-square-kilometre area for uh, depositing those um, uh, sediments which were quite highly contaminated, wouldn't have been allowed, for example, to be dumped in Australian waters unless there was some more contained approach to it, and that's what uh, led to the, the approach that was adopted for the channel deepening. And what is the containment? Well, it was constructed out of clay, which was also dredged in the process of deepening the channel. So a clay bund is what it's called. The sediments that were deposited within that bund were then capped with a layer of what's called clean sand that was brought up from the south of the bay when the, the deepening of the, the shipping channel down there was uh, created. And who monitors it? Uh, well, it's part of the um, environmental management plan of the project that uh, it is monitored, but the monitoring, as I understand it, really doesn't go any further than just uh, a few divers going down now and then to um, do a bit of filming of what the bund, the, st the condition that the bun's in. You were very critical at the time. I remain ad remain? adamant that, 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 that the process of uh, depositing contaminated sediments in the bay is, is a bad move. It should never have been done. Um, it was cheaper. It was cheaper. Well, the, the, to actually um, remove it and process those sediments on land would have been cost an arm and a leg, and uh, there was no no will to do that. The longer term impacts uh, are something that were just discarded and dis weren't weren't really acknowledged at that time. The whole process of depositing much of the sediments from barges too uh, was also a concern that I raised. At the time, and I still uh, say that that practice should be discontinued. 
because basically opening up the bottom of, of a barge and letting uh, contaminated sediments gradually float down to the seabed, you're allowing that an opportunity for wave action at the time and turbulence within the water to disperse those very fine particles of silt which have the contaminants actually adsorbed to them can be dispersed into the wider bay area and uh, I don't believe there has been any testing to um, prove that that hasn't occurred. And would those contaminants be from recent industries around the bay or would they be there for many, many years in the bay? Some would have been there for many, many years because, um, as we say, the the dredging is actually uh, going down several metres to uh, enable deeper draft ships to get in. So, uh, you know, anything that's two metres down, for example, has quite likely been there for for quite a while. And we pretty know well know the the nasties that were put into the bay over those years from industry yeah there's that was pretty well documented yeah so there was no question that um there was serious implications of of allowing those contaminants to be out into the water some of them were at, at levels that were quite significant radioactive materials did you ever get to the bottom of that that was never got to the bottom of um even though uh, you know, there was clear evidence that there was a likelihood of radioactive materials uh, having got into the, into the Yarra at uh, Lorimer Street from a site in Lorimer Street. Um, there was no will to test for that particular product um, at the time during the channel, channel deepening. And um, to be on, quite brutally frank, not really strong enough concern expressed by the community. So <laughs> what can you do? Out of sight, out of mind, is it? Well, I don't know whether it was just too hard for some, you know. But, uh, yeah, it was one of those things that uh, was was easier just to say, oh, we'll do nothing, because I guess it's one of those things too that um, the impacts of it are quite masked. So, you know, if somebody ends up getting liver cancer or something because they eat fish that was you know, contaminated, well, who's going to prove it? It's, uh, so it's just one of those sort of things that the environmental factors that, might have an effect on people but you know there's all sorts of other contaminants that we find in our daily lives i just heard a thing on the radio this morning about uh, particulates in the atmosphere you know that can exacerbate or uh, increase the likelihood of having strokes and various other things so that's just life in the big city what other things do you engage in as a bait as the bay keeper oh well uh, i guess one of the um uh, great things that has been ha- happening over the last two years was the production of the Baykeepers film, which uh, filmed by Michael Lutman. Michael's just done a fantastic job of that, and I have to say um, we all owe him a debt of gratitude because uh, the film is actually really mobilising a lot of people to get more active about particularly preventing plastics from getting in- into the marine environment, really connecting people and giving them a, a better uh, insight into um, the value of actually doing something. <laughs> Tell us about the, a little bit about the film. Really, essentially, highlights plastics getting into Port Phillip Bay, and uh, is a twenty-six minute documentary. But more particularly, shows what people are actually doing about it. So the groups that are active, or researchers like Jennifer Lavis, for example, who's been studying the impacts of plastics on seabirds, and uh, Kate Charlton Robb discovered the Burrinan dolphin. You know, so she's. Uh, in there too and just talking about the impacts and the potential to uh, harm the, the local dolphin population and the key to the value of all of this that, and the zoo too they've got a marine response unit that uh, you know, particularly are focusing on 
cleaning up fishing line and uh, those kind of threats to wildlife entanglement uh, with fishing line is, is a major one. And the beach patrol groups, though, that are actually getting out once a month in, uh, in their colourful shirts and uh, just picking up trash from the beaches. They're taking tonnes of stuff off the beaches to keep things clean, you know, and they're starting to document too what they're collecting now. So that's going to be providing valuable data that can be uh, pointing to where, well, what kind of trash is it and therefore where is it coming from, Who is, who's the, the key culprits in uh, making this happen, you know, what kind of infrastructure or education do we need to develop to try and reduce those loads of plastics getting into the bay. So uh, people have generally responded of all ages, from primary school up to you know people in their 70s or 80s, have uh, really been impressed with the film but has very high production values and some good music. Did you get well. into schools? Yes, yes. That's, uh, well, such as Frankston, yes. Yeah. So every, every student at Frankston High School um, has seen the film in, over the last few weeks and uh, now they're doing uh, good work to start monitoring and uh, clean up their local beaches. But, yeah, the response has been that uh, because um, it's, a, it's local and people see it as a, they uh, relate to their local area, they want to do something to actually uh, help to eliminate it the problem of plastics getting into the into the waterways and uh, so that's that's really the exactly what we were hoping to achieve and the film went overseas as well it won an award at the oceanside film festival in uh, california in august last year best short documentary and uh, it's being screened at the cleveland uh, international film festival uh, this month great rap particularly for michael you know as the as the key filmmaker I think there were over 1,500 uh, films submitted that, or applications to get into the festival and 220 were accepted. And all this you've been talking about is all down on the shoestring, isn't it? Do you get help from the state government, local governments? Uh, we do. We get a little bit of help there. Uh, one of, uh, the film itself um, came about through, uh, unfortunately, an oil spill prosecution, so... <laughs> <laughs> try and make the most of things. There's a good concept of restorative justice, though, that uh, the EPA implements. So they successfully prosecuted uh, a couple of companies, actually, for a, a particular oil spill. Uh, people who caused the spill were actually uh, ordered by the court to fund some projects conducted by community groups. So the Echo Centre partnered with a range of other groups to do activities based around water quality and uh, cleaning up the environment so um, that's a good concept do oil spills still happen we don't hear about them uh, well, they just happen quietly they do happen but um, generally not large ones so uh, they're of, often mainly contaminants or spills in in ports for example might when be when boats are refueling or so you'll have minor spills occurring in those kind of situations or other sort of potential things are when maybe a boat catches fire and there's needing or a facility on the port or the dock actually catches fire and they need to use foam to actually put it out, which can get into the water. So there's a few sort of uh, minor localised things that are happening uh, not all that infrequently. And they've got the proper facilities to clean up if that does happen. Yeah, well, they have floating booms and things to try and you know, contain uh, spills as a rule, and that generally does occur, yeah. So. And just explain to people, Neil, where you are and if people would like to come along and say hello and have a look what you're doing down there. 
Yeah, well, the Portfield of Echoes End is based in St Kilda, in St Kilda Botanical Gardens, on the corner of Blessington and Herbert Street, so it's not very far from the uh, end of the number 96 light rail uh, tram in, in Ackland Street. Uh, it's a good idea if people actually let us know if they are going to drop in there because uh, we don't, unfortunately, we can't afford to have someone to sit at the door smiling and talking to everyone who drops in, so uh, we've got a lot happening. But um, if they go onto the Echo Centre website, though, echocentre.com, they can find out about any of com- events coming up, etc., and, and get involved. And, of course, remind listeners of your award la- awards. Your, <laughs> your awards last year. Well, yeah. We, we, you cleaned them up. I hope I don't forget one of them, but uh, <laughs> we did. We, we, we won um, the Premier's Recognition Award last year, and, uh, which was for our um, life support for the Bay programs. We've had a number of projects that have been working at uh, generally protecting the Bay. One of them studying Northern Pacific Sea Stars. Too. We, um, in the Keep Australia Beautiful Awards, we, we won an award in that one as well. So, And as I mentioned, the Baykeepers film. And uh, I suppose I have to say it, um, I managed to get a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Victorian Coastal Council too. So uh, it means I can go home, put my feet up, don't have to worry anymore, take it easy. <laughs> That'll be a good day. <laughs> I'm waiting for that one, Neil. Yeah. I think it's a few years off yet. Oh, I'd like to play a bit more ukulele. So um, I've got this new character called Captain Trash, who's a pirate uh, who gets out and plays some ukulele, a flying V uke. Fantastic, I'll tell you. Where does he perform? Well, uh, the Litter Fairy and Captain Trash are going to be doing some stuff up at Belgrave. I think one's on April the 26th. There's a mini beast festival up there. Another one in June. Uh, We'd not get the date wrong, but anyway, that's a lantern festival. The um, Shire of Yarra Rangers have got a number of events. They're particularly concerned about trash getting into the waterways and impacting on the platypus population up there. So that's fantastic that they're really uh, doing some good work to draw attention to the uh, the need to make sure that stuff doesn't get in the waterways and cause it cause the platypus some grief. Have you got that on your website? Not yet, but uh, we're still waiting for the exact details of it, but um, that's that's the word, is that we've been uh, invited to go up there and have a bit of fun. Good I? And go, that sort of stuff, you know? Bit of an argument, though, about uh, what it actually stands for. And that's Captain Trash, but I think it's really Neil Blake from the Port Phillip Eco Centre. On the program last week, we heard historian and author Brian McKinlay speaking about the history of the country we now know as Iran. Today, we pick up Brian talking about the 1940s and the National Front of Iran, founded by Mohammad Mossadegh and other secular Iranian nationalist leaders who had been educated in France. Perhaps the most important event in modern Iranian-Persian history was the coming in the late 40s of a democratic reformer, an elderly man, though, called Mossadegh. Now, Mossadegh was prime minister from 1949 onwards, and he wanted to modernise and open up Iranian society and also get rid of the Western powers, particularly Britain. There was a company called the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which controlled, literally, the 
a small but growing Iranian oil industry. And Mossadegh decided in a dramatic move that he would nationalise the oil industry. No one in the Arab world had dared, no government had dared to confront the Western-owned oil companies, which had the backing of Britain and American arms and fleets and everything else. Now, Mossadegh had great public support in Iran. He was something of a hero, indeed, right throughout the Arab world. You must remember that in 1952 and three, Egypt was still under British colonial rule. The Western powers had established, basically, giving their support to the State of Israel. The French had just gone from Syria. The Gulf states were all under British control. So Mossadegh's uh, courage was rather remarkable. A few years later, in 1955-56, NASA would come to power in Egypt and confront the West over Suez. But this was a moment when Mossadegh stood alone, and he did that. He pushed through his legislation, through the parliament. He won an election, then pushed after the election for nationalisation, and uh, the whole oil industry was nationalised. He paid the British for it, but that didn't satisfy them at all. They had no wish to see to pay more for their oil and to see it run by Iran. So they set about a coup in which they enlisted criminal groups because this government had wide support. They paid people to organise a series of events and the Shah, a very young Shah, you and I will remember him, I think, from earlier, his later life, the young Shah was in the plot and he suddenly upped with his wife and family and flew out of Iran to Rome actually to Italy where he sought asylum and he said the government of Iran was embarked on a course of socialism and he hinted that the Russians were behind the government. Now this was all the Americans needed to justify their involvement and the CIA then set up a plot which as I mentioned had very little public support but had the support of criminal groups, some wealthy groups in the country who didn't like Mossadegh because in many ways his rhetoric and his actions were socialist. He wanted to set up all sorts of government institutions. In the 1950s, Iran was a very poor country with low standards of health and education, housing, and he saw the oil as being the key to changing all that, and quite justifiably. His efforts were seen right across the Arab world as the shape of the future. So he had to be done away with. And this was done by organising a coup in which the Shah now took part and armed groups, armed by the Americans secretly, took to the streets of Tehran, attacked the parliament, attacked the prime minister's residence. His foreign minister was his principal ally, also a, a newspaper owner, and his newspaper was burned down by the rioting crowds. And amazingly, Iranian army stood by and saw this coup take place because it was also bought out by the Americans and the British, and the coup succeeded. Mossadegh was arrested and tried and sentenced to a long term of imprisonment, though he was eventually allowed to go under house arrest 
to his country house where he never emerged. He never came back into public life. His foreign minister was tried and executed by hanging, as many of his government were, and thousands of his supporters were rounded up by the, by the Shah, who now returned, I might say, and with the help of the British and the Americans set about crushing the left-wing parties, of which there were several, sweeping aside all talk of the nationalisation of the oil industry. And with the help of Israel and the West, but particularly Israel, Israel's contribution to this was to bring Mossad into Iran secretly and train a particularly virulent secret service, which then rooted out all Mossadegh supporters and all talk of nationalisation. And so the Western powers maintained their total control of the oil industry and Iran got very little for its efforts, though the oil was coming from their soil. And that led to a regime under the Shah, which lasted from 1952 to 1979. That's a period of a quarter of a century, really. And amongst the people he persecuted was several famous clerics, including the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was eventually jailed and uh, he was a fundamentalist Islamic preacher. But he detested the Shah and said the Shah's regime was illegal and uh, vile and anti-Islamic. He was exiled in the end to Paris, where he stayed till 1979. Now, by the late 1970s, the whole climate in the Middle East had changed dramatically in countries like Iraq. Saddam Hussein had nationalised the oil industry, so had Gaddafi in Libya. A new climate of opinion was emerging in Iran. The Shah was um, ageing. His regime was increasingly unpopular. Uh, he also embarked on a very dangerous experiment to wipe out small-time agriculture in Iran and replace it with modern, large-scale, mechanised farming. But this meant that a lot of small farmers were compensated to get off their land uh, to go to work in what the Shah hoped would be big industries in cities like Tehran. Well, this didn't work. These people lost their farms, got a bit of cash, went off, spent it, and finished up on the streets or living in poverty in the big cities. And this was a focus for opposition to the Shah's increasingly unpopular regime. And, a, and an odd thing happened, which at the time nobody knew of, the Shah himself had become seriously ill with what in fact was to be brain cancer, brain tumour. Now, there's a book by a man called Shawcross, a British writer and historian, and I'm sure the library around, the libraries will have copies, it's called The Death of the Shah, The Fall of the Shah, and Shawcross learned this extraordinary story, which is like something from James Bond. Uh, as the Shah became ill, he was convinced that the Americans and the British, especially the Americans, would remove him from the throne in place of his young son, who would be healthy and easily manipulated. Hanging on to a dying ruler, as he was, would not suit their purpose. So he secretly contacted a famous French academic and brain surgeon at Paris University, one of the Paris universities, I think it was the Sorbonne, to come out and see what should be done. And this guy made a secret trip to Iran, not even knowing that his patient, 
he was told that it was an important figure and he must keep it secret, was the Shah himself. And in the book, Shawcross tells this extraordinary story. Well, the doctor decided that he would have to have surgery and he made secret visits to Iran. In fact, he taught at Paris University. And so the easiest way was to fly out on Friday night to Iran and do all the tests and talk to his patient and get ready for the big operation, which was carried out in one of the Shah's palaces secretly. All of this was done with great secrecy, so much so that the French doctor, specialist as he was, was suspected by his friends who couldn't see him on the weekend. He had something on every weekend. Uh, he told his wife. She was the only person that knew. But his friends and family thought that he was having an affair. That's a very French construction, by the way. But uh, he wasn't, and eventually the operation was done not all that successfully because the condition was far advanced. But it gave the Shah a bit more life. But at this moment, his regime was collapsing, and he needed all his wits and health to try and hang on, and he couldn't do that. And then in... Uh, late 79, great demonstrations, mass meetings, all of them banned, of course, took place, and this was the beginning of what became known as the Islamic Revolution. And on one particular day in September, uh, huge crowds were fired upon by the Shah's police, and about 1,200 people were killed in one day in the streets of Tehran. Now, far from putting down the rising, this only strengthened it. People were so enraged. At one time, the police actually shot down people waiting in the street outside the hospital to find news of their injured families. The revolution spread everywhere. It culminated in a general strike. The airports were closed, the banks, indeed, the rich in their concern that the regime was going to fall drew out vast sums of money and would have bankrupted the country uh, until the unions closed in a strike, closed the banking system. Some of the Shah's relatives actually pillaged the National Art Gallery, which had a very valuable collection of famous European art. The Shah liked the French Impressionists, and he'd bought all manner of things. Well, many of his family went to the galleries and literally took famous paintings off the wall and trundled them home in an attempt to get out of the country, and many of them did, with valuable works of art. The Shah now decided that he would have to go, and he flew to Egypt. He believed the Americans would give him both medical care and allow him into America, but the Carter regime was now so panic-stricken that they refused him entry, and he went to Panama, where he died. Well, as soon as the Shah left, literally within hours, the regime collapsed, and within a few days, the Ayatollah Khomeini returned at the head of the triumphant revolutionary movement, although there was a large left-wing group going way back to Mossadegh in the 50s, which didn't much like the Ayatollah, and hoped for a much more left-wing government. And there were bitter struggles between the Islamic fundamentalists around Khomeini and the quite large left-wing parties in Iran, which lost the battle. And after some months of what was effectively civil war, the Islamists under Khomeini took power and instituted a whole raft of new measures, 
and a new title. They called it um, the Islamic Republic of Iran. And so this long history of nearly three millenniums of a shah, a monarch, ruling the country came to an end and then triggered off right across the Islamic world movements which are still active today, especially among Shias, of revolutionary Islam, part of the Shia Islam movement in Persia, in Iran, has always had a, a sort of socialist view of the world, and especially a view that monarchs are unwelcome and un-Islamic. Uh, some people call this red Islam. Well, that's fed into the general revolutionary movements across the Middle East. It's deeply detested and opposed by the the most corrupt monarchy in all human history perhaps and that is the rulers of Saudi Arabia certainly the richest the whole structure that the West had erected the secret police the army all of that in Persia in, in Iran was swept away in the year after the fall of the Shah's regime under the Shah by the way the Americans had been quite happy the Shah thought, like the present government of Iran, that they should have nuclear power for electric energy and save their gas and their oil to sell on the world market. And that basically is what Iran still wants to do. And the Americans never much opposed that. What the Americans managed to do in the early 1980s was arm Saddam Hussein, and he was in their good books then, and there are famous photographs of leading American officials who later turned up in George Bush's regime visiting Saddam and giving him weapons, in fact chemical weapons, to use against Iran, which he did using missiles the Americans supplied him with. And that war went on for eight years, from 1980, a year after the revolution, to 1988. And about half a million people in Iran and Iraq died in the battlefields. And Saddam, by the way, used some of his weapons, not against Iran, as the Americans had hoped, but against the Kurds. You may remember there was a massacre of Kurds in one village in northern Iraq using chemical weapons supplied by the Americans. All of that opened a great rift between the Americans and the Iranians, which has lasted for more than 30 years, about 35 years in fact, in which there's been no diplomatic or other events uh, occur between the two countries. Iran has been bitterly attacked by Israel because Israelis, of course, hold the largest nuclear arsenal in the Middle East, indeed one of the largest in the world. Jimmy Carter said they had about 400 missiles recently in a book on the matter. And there's no doubt that Israel's a major nuclear power, more so than India or Pakistan. But that hasn't stopped Netanyahu attacking endlessly Iran. And what he wants to do, and makes little secret, that he would like to see a war with Iran fought by the United States which would preserve Israel's dominance. Well, the United States is no longer in the position to, even as it was under George Bush, to launch major conflicts in the Middle East. And Obama certainly doesn't want to. The gulf, the rift, the bitterness between Obama and, and Netanyahu has come out of this. 
Netanyahu is now pretty isolated. This feeling that an arrangement must be struck between Iran and the West about these nuclear power stations has dominated Obama's foreign policy. Interestingly, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives and Senate in Washington, both now, has taken up a virulently anti-Iranian and anti-Obama position. A few weeks ago, they carried a resolution to tell the Iranians, this is the American Congress, don't take any notice of what our president says. When we're in power in two years' time, if we are, we'll tear up this treaty and we'll see you don't get your nuclear power stations, which are in an advanced stage of construction, by the way. They've been built with the help of the Russians, who who are pretty good at nuclear power stations and have a number of them. Uh, Iran has spent great sums of money on the construction of them. Uh, Iran is not a poor country. It has the, uh, the wealth of its oil industries. That has led to Western sanctions on Iran, which has hurt industry and the public very badly. They're not happy about that at all. But uh, the Iranian government has stuck out for the right to have a nuclear power system, as so many countries have. Why should Iran be especially forbidden to do this? And after all, countries nearby like Pakistan have the bomb, even though the Iranians have maintained that they don't want the bomb. Netanyahu, of course, in his several visits recently to Washington, has made this the centrepiece of his foreign policy and um, gets endless standing ovations when he thunders against Iran before the American Congress, but not from the president. The last visit of Netanyahu went without any invitation to the White House. Pretty extraordinary, really. Uh, I can't think of a modern parallel of a foreign head of state visiting a country and not meeting its head of state, but speaking to its parliament and derogating the president himself. There has never been, since the creation of the State of Israel, I don't think, such a rift between the American president and the Israeli prime minister. And it alarms moderate groups in Israel. The Iranians, however, have been experts at the negotiations. And um, while they're going to be restricted in the centrifuges that make uh, the nuclear materials... And if you're going to have power stations, you have to be able to make your own materials. You can't be dependent on another country because they can simply curtail the supply of nuclear materials, just like somebody could cut off your supply of of coal or oil, and your whole country would be thrown into crisis. The idea is, of course, Iran, which has a modern power system, mostly fuelled by oil and gas, or entirely fueled by oil and gas, will be able to switch over over a number of years to using nuclear power. Now, whatever reservations we might have about nuclear power, this makes sense for the Iranians in the terms of their world trade. So we see this crisis hopefully settled to allow the Iranians to proceed. It gives Iran a new power in the Middle East, as the Persians right through the history have been, it opens a channel, it has done, between the Western powers in Europe and the Americans and Iran. And it places Netanyahu on the outside, a thing he hates. 
just as he hates Obama, I think. But there's nothing much the Israelis can do for the moment because much as Netanyahu would like to see a massive American bombing campaign of a familiar kind against Iran to reduce it to a ruin as they've done with Iraq and Libya and Libya too, they're not going to be able to do this now. Well, they, they don't want to do it. The Americans, I don't think, ever wanted to be plunged into a war with Iran. Some people in Washington might, but um, Obama certainly doesn't. And out of this will come an agreement uh, that, in a sense, will change the face of relations between the West and Iran and will establish Iran as a great power in the region. And uh, it will um, make an enormous difference to the life of the Iranian people because of the um, lifting, hopefully, and that's promised that it's been partly done already, of the sanctions imposed on Iranian industry. Finally, Brian, what you've been talking about is centuries of what you call a great civilization. Yeah. Has that been for, to the exclusion of women or have women had a part? And do they have a part now? Well, I know that whole question of women in Iran, which comes back to the more fundamentalist Islamic view of the role of women, I think has been part of Islamic civilization uh, in the Middle East since the 7th and 8th century. Women, even in ancient Greece and other places, were often kept out of society and a few had much influence beyond the home. For instance, I read recently that in Constantinople, even in the Christian period, before Turkey in the 14th century fell to the people we now call the Turks, the old Byzantine civilization, which was a thousand years longer than the Roman civilization, women in Istanbul in Constantinople then was, often wore headscarves and head coverings. So it's part of a long cultural tradition which doesn't make any sense to you and I. I understand in the last few years there's been a marked improvement in Iran in the way in which women, uh, young women, dress. Many of them wear relatively... Um, small veils and were not as... Uh, certainly many don't wear the hijab. Some do, but many of them only wear a scarf. And by the way, one odd thing about Iran, and another book that I might mention, I can't think of the author's name. It's an American woman whose family wa had long connections with Iran before the revolution and has written a very interesting travelogue on her travels around Iran in the last decade because she spoke Persian. She was able to get a visa to travel alone, quite uncommon for a woman at the time. She wore a headscarf. She had lots of friends to visit and look after her, Iranian friends, and uh, she's written a very interesting account. For instance, despite in Iran the dress of women that was laid down after the revolution, women were not prohibited from education and from a place in public life. For instance, there are several cabinet ministers and have been in several Iranian governments that were women, probably more than in Australia under Tony Abbott, I suspect. Women ran and still do run businesses 
And because women, in this case, because women, when they go to the doctor, only go to a woman doctor, quite sensibly, the Iranian governments, which have spent a lot of money on education at every level, decided that women doctors would have to be trained in equal numbers to male doctors and set up training colleges and universities for this purpose. She visited one of these and it was run by senior women, doctors themselves, pretty formidable ladies by the sound of it. They were allowed to bring in male lecturers on a daily basis if they needed them on various medical problems, but in fact the entire staff of the college she visited, attached to a university, were females. And all the senior people who ran were females, and uh, these then went out into the country. There's a national health scheme in Iran, and provided free medical service. She also looked at a, a woman known to her in Tehran who ran a, a specialist gardening operation and she hired men to run what we'd see as a landscape gardening company providing gardens, courtyard gardens and I mentioned earlier the great Persian tradition of gardens the enclosed courtyard paradise garden eventually spread through the Arab world to Spain and to Europe. This woman ran that sort of company which uh, for the wealthy would provide a beautiful courtyard garden and uh, she ran it and had male employees. <coughs> this kind of arrangement is more widespread, I found, reading this book than I was aware. One has the view that Iranian women, perhaps like Saudi Arabia, are completely subjugated. Now, there's a country where women have no hope of careers or jobs. They can't drive a car. They can't leave the house without a male relative. Well, that's not the case in Iran. And next time you see a news item from Iran, mostly you'll get shots of street crowds. Have a look at the women in the crowd. I did this the other night. And you'll notice their, their dressing. Uh, apparently, too, it's become quite common for women to wear something other than the obligatory black. So things are changing. Uh, recently, I noticed a news item. Present president is not a hardliner, by the way, on these matters. One of the things the government has allowed is for women to attend sporting functions where there's an all-male team. Now, women have been allowed to go and sit in segregated areas to watch, let's say, something like a woman's netball team. And Iran features quite well. A lot of time is given in the school systems to sport and physical education. <clears throat> they have an excellent educational system, I understand. But now women can actually go to a football match and see brawny young males clad in shorts and shirts and running around biffing each other, which formerly they couldn't do. This was thought not to be very ladylike, to watch um, brawny young men and pretty scantily clad young men, but now that's been allowed. The book, by the way, is called Neither East Nor West, and I'm sorry I can't remember the author's name, but the book is well worth reading, giving you a very interesting picture. She's aware of all the problems of Iran, warts and all. It's no apologia. But the book is very interesting, and I would recommend it to your listeners. And that's Brian McKinlay, author and historian, and talking about the, the more recent history of Iran, which was Persia. 
That's all for me. Food fight coming up in just a moment. Bye for now.